the cross. It's used for jewelry and adorns churches. It's polished and looks nice. We sing and talk about it. And it's all nice and sweet and shows really how much we really don't understand about the cross. Good Friday is even a day that we remember and celebrate Jesus dying on the cross. And even it's funny that we use that as our symbol because uh, it wasn't actually adopted as the symbol of, uh, for Christianity until the 4th century. Time makes everything sweeter, I guess. Because when it all happened, there was no celebrating. or It was all mourning. I want to transport you back to 2,000 years and explain exactly what all happened. Because there's really two sides of the cross. I want to take a detailed look at the physical, what Jesus physically and emotionally went through for that last 24 hours. And then we'll look at the spiritual side of what was going on behind the scenes. In uh, Luke 22, uh, 44, it actually, we start in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is praying before God. And he, Luke records that he was under such agony that he started sweating drops of blood. Now, many have taken this as figurative, but it's an actual medical condition. So it's no surprise that Dr. Luke actually puts it in his gospel message. It's a medical condition that happens still to this day. What happens is the capillary blood vessels uh, that feed the sweat glands, they rupture. And it causes uh, to exude, exude blood. It occurs in an individual who is suffering from extreme levels of stress, excessive exertion, fear, or intense mental contemplation. Jesus was undergoing all that. He was about to be betrayed. He knows what lies ahead. He's starting to feel a separation from God and wondering if he can make it through. In fact, it says it in his prayer. It says, if there's any other way, if there's any other way. But then he shows us what submission truly looks like. He says, but not my will, but yours be done. You know what courage and bravery is? It's actually knowing what's ahead and still doing it anyways. And John 18, 4 through 5, it says, Jesus fully realized. He fully realized all that was going to happen to him. He knew what was going to happen. Every little bit that we're about to go into, he knows what's about to happen. And then it says, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus, the Nazarene. They replied, I am he, Jesus said. I want you to understand this. Jesus was a man's man. He was no limp-wristed, veggie-eating hippie. He was a man's man. He was a carpenter. He was tough. He, he, he knew and he stuck to his core. He fully realized what was going to happen. Instead of running and cowering, he stepped forward. And then it begins. They arrest him. They take him in. They do this mock trial. They get some people to testify falsely against him enough to like make him feel a little bit good about themselves. And then they get he, the temple guards start beating him. They blindfold him and they begin punching him and mocking him and telling him, Hey, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. And then when they get bored or run out of time, they drag him to Pilate, who was the, the Roman uh, appointed ruler of that region, because they couldn't execute someone. So they were trying to pass it off to him. And Pilate starts questioning Jesus, and he finds him. He's like, this guy hasn't done anything. He's not guilty. And he sees right through the religious leaders that they're doing a power play. They're just simply trying to get rid of this guy that keeps taking everybody else away from them. 
So Pilate, tried, he first tries to do a legal loophole and, and he uh, sends him over to Herod. So he goes off to Herod and Herod doesn't get much out of him. So he sends him back to Pilate and Pilate, he says, you know what? And he does this final thing that he's like, I don't want to start a riot because if a riot starts, I'm going to lose my position of power, even though he's about to lose it in three years anyways. So he tries to do an appeal to pity and he orders the soldiers to flog Jesus. And then he's going to bring Jesus back out here. His thinking is, if I bring Jesus back out here, he's already beaten and, and swollen. His eyes are black and blue. If we bring him out here after being flogged, maybe the bloodlust will be satisfied and the people will be satisfied and we can let him go. So Jesus is whisked back inside the governor's headquarters under guard. And all the soldiers on duty from that cohort uh, join in the attack. Now, a cohort is about a tenth of a legion, uh, generally around 600 men. And it's not likely that all 600 of them joined in the flogging of Jesus. But at the same time, they were all there. They probably all were cheering it on, and it became this mob mentality. The, and it wasn't that they so much hated Jesus. It was more that they hated the Jewish race because they were more a peacekeeping mission there. And these people just had constantly caused them trouble. So this is an opportunity for them to blow off some steam. And they... Uh, do just that. It's like a cat and mouse enjoying the kill before, or enjoying torturing before the kill. And so they flog him. Now we usually think of like the bullwhip, like Indiana Jones, right? That's not what the flogging was. It actually was, uh, some, it was a horrible, horrible punishment and torture advice. In fact, it was so bad that if you're a Roman citizen, you had to get a decree from Caesar himself saying that you could be flogged. That's how horrible it was. Whether it was whether it was via cat nine tails, and they would have a stick kind of like this one, and it'd have nine leather strands, and it'd have in it it would have balls, metal balls, and bones and glass and metal hooks. And what they would do is they would take the person. And they would tie them up either with their hands up over their head or, or over something. And the, the whole point was to make their back nice and taut. And then they would have a Roman soldier, one on either side with a cat of nine tails. And they, would, they, they wouldn't crack the whip. Instead, they would slap and then pull down. Slap and pull down. And they would start all the way up here at the neck. And they'd work all the way down the buttocks, down the back of the legs. And what would happen is those metal balls would begin tenderizing the meat and the flesh. And then those hooks and those bones would start grabbing in and it would start puncturing and ripping. And literally ribbons of flesh would be falling off the person. And while the Jewish people, they limited it to 39 lashes. The Romans, it was depending on the soldier. They could go as long as they wanted. And oftentimes, six out of ten people would die right from the flogging itself. So much muscle would be shredded away and just hanging there that the victim's vertebrae and intestines would oftentimes be exposed. Sometimes as they would go, the, the whips would come around and they'd gouge out the eyes. History even records at one time a hook actually grabbed a hold of the rib and the Roman soldier pulled it. And pulled the rib out flying from the person. 
Yes, six out of ten times the person would die from the loss of blood or sometimes there just wasn't enough flesh to hold in their intestines and so they would stand and they would die. And those that did survive, they were usually just carried away on a stretcher, permanently mutilated. But even after this massacre, the soldiers' thirst for blood isn't satisfied. They are possessed. The mob mentality has taken over. They begin to beat and mock Jesus. They take a thorny branch and long thorns and a crown on his head to complete the ensemble. And then they start worshiping him. And they put an old robe on him. And the robe would begin to coagulate in the fiber of his open back. Then with the staff in his hands, they began spitting on him and mocking him. And, oh, hail is king of the Jews. And finally, when they got tired, they brought him back out to Pilate, who represents, presents this man to the people, thinking, surely no one can even recognize him. His own mom's in the crowd and can't even recognize him anymore. Surely now they would be satisfied. He says, here's the man. What do you want? And they yell, crucify him. Why? Because he bounced kids on a knee? Because he said, love your enemy? Scripture simply goes on and says they crucified him. They didn't need to say more because everybody knew what a crucifixion was. They'd seen it happen over and over again. It was prophesied, yes, that Jesus would die on a cross thousands of years before him. It was invented by the Persians 800 years before Jesus, but it was perfected by the Romans. They enjoyed trying to figure out how to bring out the most torture and pain for the longest amount of time. When Spartacus fell in battle, they crucified 6,000 people in one day along 120 miles. That's from Kalispell to Missoula. It was done in public places, places like shopping centers and places where people would gather so that they could maximize the crowds to make sure that they got the message. Do not mess with us. Do not mess with the state or this is what happens to you. Victims, they could uh, average amount of time was about 72 hours. Some have even lasted days. And uh, as they're hanging there, oftentimes then the vultures and dogs would start catching scent and they would come and start eating the victim alive off the cross. Vultures would go straight for the juicy morsels of the eyes. And then dogs would start eating off. And once dead, though, then the dogs, would they would just hang there. And the dogs and vultures would just pick away. And whatever remained of the victim would eventually be thrown into the garbage. Or taken to the dump. Unless his family buried him. So Jesus certainly knew about crucifixion. He knew what was ahead. He probably even witnessed it as a little boy. Can you imagine that? That he looks and says, that's going to be me. That's where my life is headed. But he doesn't shrink back. He doesn't look for another alternative. So, some quick history background, but we're going back to Jesus has just been sentenced to crucifixion. He knows now what's coming ahead. Everybody else does too. They take him back inside and the soldiers rip the robe from his back, opening afresh the gaping wounds from the flogging. Then a rough splintery beam of 75 to 125 pounds is placed on his bare, bloody, traumatized back and shoulders. 
He was a strong man. He was a carpenter. He had carried kind of rough timber before, but not like this. Can you imagine this? I mean, just getting a splinter is bad enough. But now your back is completely exposed, bloodied and traumatized, and you've got wounds that go down to the tissues and organs, and they throw on your back this rough, splintery beam, and you have to carry it along an uneven walk. The soldiers, or Romans, they were very green and, and cheap. They recycled their crosses and made for quick, uh, after a sentence was made, they could easily, quickly execute the person. Think of this. Jesus' blood began mixing with layers of blood and sweat and tears of countless other criminals. Scripture says that Jesus fell on his way and needed help to carry the beam the rest of the way. When he fell, his hands would have been tied to the beam at that time, and he would have no way to break his fall. So he would land straight on his chest with a beam of 100 pounds crashing upon him. And that would have caused his heart to become severely bruised when it smashed up against his sternum. Uh, doctors have actually said it was the equivalent of a high-speed head-on collision where your chest smashes against the steering wheel uh, with no airbag. An aneurysm would begin to form around his bruised heart. And with the trauma that he's already experienced, this is just going to add to the pain and discomfort. This alone, untreated, would kill him. Not to mention the loss of blood, the beatings, the flogging has already undergone. His heart, the pump, is running out of blood to pump to the, at an extreme rate. Upon arrival, they would have stripped him completely naked, pulled out his beard, showing ultimate disrespect, spit on him, and mocked him in front of his own mom, his siblings, his friends. Then this former carpenter would be nailed to the cross with railroad-like ties. He had swung the hammer countless times before, working alongside his adopted dad. Now the hammer is being swung by someone else to nail him to a tree, and his father is absent. It's important to note, oftentimes we see in the paintings and stuff like that, that we see they put the nail in the palm of his hand. They've actually found that that's not accurate. You, uh, your body wants, especially when they would put the person into the, on the cross and they drop them in and they're hanging there, they'd start convulsing a lot of times. And there's not enough there to hold the person to the body. And actually, when you look at the Greek word for hand, it actually means it's like soccer. It means from the tip of your finger all the way to your elbow. And so they've actually, between your ulna and uh, 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 radius bones, there's a major nerve. You actually can feel it if you want to. Uh, uh, you can feel right in there, and if you press really hard, you can get pain shooting up to the shoulder. Uh, and the, to cause the most amount of pain, you can hang a person right there from that one hand. And so they would put a nail right through there to cause the most pain. And, and because of the pain, after time, it would actually, your hand would start looking like a claw. And they, the Romans, they experiment in different ways. They use IXs and lowercase lower T crosses, capital crosses. Uh, they would do different ways just to see who, how to inflict the most pain. Archaeologists, they actually discovered that uh, they actually wouldn't have nailed the feet on top of the feet either. 
They actually found some bone where the person had been crucified, and it was like a four and a half inch nail, and it was actually in the heel of the bone. So this is that leads to two possible ways that they possibly would hang them. One would be straddling the cross, which would cause you to uh, put all your weight on the four crucial areas of pain. The other one would be to take the body and you would actually contort it like this and put one foot on the other. What this does is it causes mouth a lot of pain. Like right now, I mean, I'm already cramping in my one shoulder. And it caused mass discomfort. And it also, this would fulfill what God had said in Genesis 3.15 to Satan. He shall bruise his heel. They would then lift him up into a hole and cause his body to shake violently at, at this point. And the body labored to breathe as it went into shock. Now, most victims, they would become overwhelmed with the pain and become incontinent. And the sweat of wool, a pool of sweat, blood, urine, feces would gather at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine the smell? You got the iron smell from the blood, the rank from the urine, the foulness from the feces. A smell so bad, so rank, that you can literally taste it in your mouth. Now, most of the time, people would uh, die of suffocation. That's why they would last so long on the cross. And to make sure that the, and what they would have to do is they'd have to, they'd go down here, and then eventually they'd have to go back up, take a breath, and go back down. Up and down, that rough, splintery beam. And to make sure that the people didn't just stay down here and die quickly, the Romans put a pedestal right there, right at the tailbone, to cause more pain and discomfort so that the, they would be driven back up. As you can imagine, those that hung out at the crucifixions, they were not the best of society. The victims were often hung at eye level so people could make fun of them and, and, and uh, at their suffering. They would watch these events. They'd make sport of it. They would make bets. They would make fun of the people. They would make bets on who would, who would cry out the fastest, who would die the fastest. And those that hung on the cross would also lose all control of themselves. Naked and embarrassed, the victims would often use their remaining strength to seek revenge on the crowd of mockers who had gathered to jeer them. They would curse at the tormentors and while urinating and spitting on them, but not Jesus. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then, when he does this, the soldiers do something else that when we read in the Gospel of Luke and in many other places, you probably don't even notice it. You don't catch it. Because it's mentioned and we just move right on. And it says that they gave him, they put some sour wine or vinegar in his mouth. In some translations, they equate it to, uh, to vinegar. And in other Gospels, they say they put it on a stick. Now, when I first read this, and all growing up until just recent times, I always thought, well, that is nice. They gave him something to drink. As they're murdering him, at least they gave him a moment of relief and respect. So there was a little bit of compassion on their behalf. No, it wasn't. They've actually discovered ancient restrooms from Jesus' time. And they discovered the way that people would wipe and clean themselves was to use stick with sponges for cleaning. And as they discovered more about the hygiene and how sickness is kind of spread, they found out that they should sanitize the sponges. So they would put it in sour wine or vinegar. 
to kill the bacteria and germs. Every time you go to the bathroom and you look down and you see a toilet brush, that's the equivalent of what this is. And it was fairly common for the soldiers, they would keep this uh, in, in their gear to cleanse themselves while out there in the battleground. And that's what they shoved in the mouth of God when he assured, Father, forgive them. You see, when we sin, we sin against God. It's not the psalmist. It's the psalmist who says, against you only, Lord, have I sinned. God came to earth. He becomes man. He began preaching love. God comes preaching forgiveness. And we murdered him. We execute him and the soldiers crucify him. And even in the moment, he is crying out, Father, forgive him. And to shut him up, they take their toilet brush and shove it in the mouth of God so that the last taste on his lips of the creator of the universe. Six hours pass and Jesus finally yells, It is finished. Then he committed his spirit to God and died. Now, most victims, they would last a long time and die of suffocation. Jesus' yelling indicates to us that that's not the case. This is further verified later when the Roman soldiers come by. You see, the religious leaders, they needed to hurry things along because they had a religious holiday that they needed to observe. And they wanted the peace of mind that this troublemaker was finally dealt with. They had Pilate. Get the order for soldiers to break the legs of the victims because someone could hang there for days. And the Roman soldier came to Jesus and noticed that he was already dead. But he checked because if by Roman law, if he had wrongly declared him dead, he would undergo the same punishment. So he takes a spear and he pierced Jesus' side and blood and water flowed. Jesus heart had exploded from the aneurysm and the stress of the wrath of God that started earlier and the blood in the heart that mixed with the water and the, the periodical sack. Jesus literally died of a broken heart. This is what Jesus, God in the flesh, underwent. This is what our sins deserve. This is also what Jesus calls his followers to. To follow Jesus is to die to yourself, to appear as a failed loser to the world. It's ruthless. It's agonizing. But he's worth it. We have focused on the physical side, but now we need to look at the spiritual side. Why do we call something so terrible, so horrendous, good? We look behind and we find uh, in Colossians, it says, he defeats the enemy. Here's how you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your, our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus on the cross, he defeated Satan. So stop giving rent to him in your head. When he gets you looking in the mirror and saying, oh, how terrible I am, how ugly I am. God, you got to realize, you got to look through the prism of the cross like God sees you. 
He does not see that. He rescues you. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You need to understand it was not the soldiers beating him, flogging him or nailing him to the cross. It was you. It was me. It was our sin. That little lie, that anger, that disrespect, that unkind thought or word, that lust, the gossip, the rape, the murder, the self-righteousness, the bitterness, the resentment, the unforgiveness, the pride, self-promoting. That's what killed Jesus. Our sin was laid upon Jesus. And I don't understand exactly how this happens, but this is what scripture says, is that in that moment, all the ugliness, all the evil was on Jesus. And when God looked down, that's what he saw. And he poured his full wrath upon Jesus. And when we accept that sacrifice, then his righteousness that should is only due to him becomes to our account. It's a substitutionary atonement. The Bible uses the word grace to explain the victory Jesus achieved by for you on the cross. Because there is no logical reason that a holy, pure God would love you and die in your place to liberate you from the wrath of God and captivity to Satan, sin, and death. No other logical reason other than his wonderful nature. Make no mistake, the cross and all that Jesus went through declared boldly and unapologetically the holiness of God. We have to understand when we look at this, we are seeing how holy and unapproachable our God really is. And it exposes how bad and how serious our sin is to that holy and sovereign God. How dare we make it such a light thing? Of passing on that little bit of gossip. How dare we not take it seriously to root out that sin in our lives? Yes, it declares the love of God, but it also proclaims a very serious warning. What we see and what Jesus went through is just a small taste of what those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior will go through for all eternity in hell. So the choice that faces all of us is we can either accept Jesus now who went through hell for us or we will suffer in hell for all eternity. The people then looking upon Jesus, they had to have all these questions going through their head as they're taking his body off the cross and they're leading them to the tomb. We also have to take this pause now before Easter Sunday comes. How will, how will those then and everyone know if Jesus was God, like he said, or just a mere man? How will we know if we have any hope of being set free from the slavery of sin? How will we know if we can have a relationship with God now and for all eternity? How will we know if God accepted the sacrifice for our forgiveness? How will we know if Jesus was an acceptable substitute in our place? We'll have our answer from God in three days.